welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome to First Incision. This exciting guest episode features Dr. Mary Ann Johnson, who is an incredible upper GI surgeon I had the privilege of working with at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne last year. She has offered to come onto the show to answer all of my questions about esophageal and gastric cancer. Given I really peppered her with clinical questions about the management of esophageal and gastric cancer, Marianne has done an incredible job answering all those questions for us and clearing up a few areas of controversy. So thanks again to Marianne, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for coming onto the program to answer all of my questions about esophageal and gastric cancer. Before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so my name's Marianne Johnson. I'm a esophagogastric and general surgeon in metropolitan Melbourne. Um, did my fellowship studies both in two years in Melbourne, a year in Fremantle, and a year overseas in the UK at Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, have been back in Melbourne now for almost five years as a consultant surgeon. I didn't know you've been to the UK. That was lots of fun. If you do get the opportunity, highly recommend it. The basis for this podcast is obviously about preparing for fellowship exam. So before we get into some specific questions, can you share with us your top tips for trainees who are either preparing for or sitting the fellowship exam? Sure. Um, So probably a few tips. The first one is having a good study group. And what I mean by a good study group is a reliable they're consistent, as in if they make a plan to come, they actually come, and to have a study plan with the group so you cover the work in a timely period. Uh, probably the second tip would be to make sure you actually schedule sleep in, as in you can be lured into continuing study into the wee hours of the morning, but you need to actually make sure you get enough sleep because not sure about you, but I know that if one is not rested, you're not going to be able to absorb any information and just really stop yourself from stealing into that sleep time. And probably a third tip is actually give yourself an evening off study or work a week, be that um, be family time, a date night or um, dinner with friends or a movie. You have to give yourself something to look forward to each week. Some great practical advice. I would definitely say that sleep is high on my priority list at all times. Moving on now to some specific questions about gastric and esophageal cancer. The first couple of questions are around the workup of gastric and esophageal cancer. What is important to document when you find a gastric mass at endoscopy? What are the important things we should be saying we're looking for and documenting? So for a um, gastric, it is the position within the stomach. And while you can describe this with words, I find it easier to interpret if I'm reading somebody else's notes is a diagram. So particularly if it's um, proximal adjacent to the junction or if it's in the pyloric channel, or if you think it's on the anterior, posterior surface of the stomach, which can be difficult to endoscopically to determine but at the time of the endoscopy if you 
palpate on the stomach side or on the, sorry, on the abdominal wall side, one can determine which side is which or if it's on the lesser curve or the greater curve. If you have um, the ability to take pictures, picture is worth a thousand words. So that's uh, the location is probably the most important thing. Um, then we go into what if it's a polypoid, ulcerated, um, what it looks like. But that's for me, that's more secondary for the size. Um, determining, well, one can determine a little bit about pathology. If it's normal overlying mucosa, it's more likely to be a gist. And with those, you, I spend a little bit more time just seeing if I can find the crater, which is a more telltale point of it being a gist. If you did see a cancer, would you do you ever have to do mapping biopsies to make sure there's not like field change or precursors elsewhere in the stomach? So if you did find a um, gastric malignancy, I put the camera on NBI, which is that funny blue screen, and to see, have a look, or essentially to see if there is any change in the field with the vascularity. Occasionally you can see a discrete change in the field and you'll find one side of the affected field is actually intestinal metaplasia. If you see that on MBI, that yes, I would do mapping biopsies to determine where the normal mucosa is compared to where the abnormal mucosa is. It's more of technique that I've been doing more recently and they're just swapping it to NBI and it's good to do it with normal gastroscopy so then you can appreciate what normal is compared to intestinal metaplasia. Next question is about the role of EUS in the workup of esophageal and gastric cancer. I ask because it seems like a lot of the stuff that I read, especially the stuff coming out of the UK, they do recommend doing EUS pretty routinely but when I was on the unit I didn't see it done that often so I was wondering when we should be saying that we would be using it and when we wouldn't be using it. Um, so EUS is it is a unit dependent but the main use I feel for EUS is determining um, adjacent lymph node status. If the tumour is in the distal esophagus say at 38 centimetres and there is a lymph node adjacent in the upper chest, so paratracheal, that could be easily um, biopsied at an EUS. If that biopsy comes back positive, that's almost in a different, that's in a different field um, to where your standard Ivalois would be, and that would change your management. So EUS um, on the current year in Melbourne tends to be only used if we think it will change one's management. In the UK, um, it tends to be done to try to determine the T-staging, but becoming less so because EUS is, has been found to be not that great at the ability to perform um, T-staging, and there's been more of a move to using EMR to, to determine the difference between T1 and T2 rather than EUS. So in summary, EUS we would use if we were trying to determine um, lymph node status that would be outside of the field of a resection or to change our management plan. There's not much difference anyway if it's a T1B plus. So, for example, if it's a T2 or a T3, that's not going to change what you do anyway. When would you use the different types of esophagectomies? Does it mainly depend on where the tumour is? So approaches in terms of a Ivor Lewis versus a three-stage. Um, does it mainly depend on where the tumour is? And 
would you ever do a um, transhiatal approach for a cancer? A few questions in there, but I'll do one at a time. Um, determining whether it be a two-stage or a three-stage for me is dependent on the location of the tumour and if there's any field change around that tumour. So if, for example, if it's a Barrett's esophagus, if it's within a Barrett's uh, up to 30 centimetres, I would do an Ivalus. But if that Barrett's extends right up to 20 or less than 20 centimetres, I would want uh, Ivalus wouldn't clear that Barrett's. So then that's when one would do a three-stage. Um, with SCCs, you don't, you don't get, obviously not the Barrett's, but we do see them in achalasia patients. So in achalasia where there's complete failure or end-stage chalasia or chalasia with tumour, I wouldn't do an Ivalus in those patients. Those patients I would do a three-stage because the underlying esophagus, if you leave a little bit, continues to dilate and become problematic. The grey area is for probably from about 25 to 30 centimetres, if that's where your tumour is. I like at least 5, if not 10 centimetre clearance above that. And then it becomes more a um, determination of the patient's body habitus. So if it's somebody a five, somebody who's 5 foot, a 20, if the lesion's at 25 centimetres, that's already down about at the level of their carina, which I can do. Ivor Lewis, but if it's somebody who's six foot seven, 25 centimeters is right at the can be right up at the thoracic inlet. So then it becomes a matter of determining of imaging what structures it's in line with, whether it be the carina, the mid, uh, mid trachea, or if it's quite high up in the neck. And when we talk about Ivalus and three-stage, we're talking about tumours in the thoracic esophagus, so you yes. wouldn't do these for a cervical esophageal tumour? Uh, no. If it's a lesion is truly cervical, starting just below the atoll, below the cricopharyngeus, we would have to have a discussion with the ENT surgeons and then you'd be looking more at a pharyngo-laryngo-esophagectomy, which is even a bigger undertaking. I've never seen one of those done, so I assume I, it's not I hope you don't have to either. <laughs> but I, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I have been involved in nearly in half a dozen cases um, so far. Uh, while I remember, there is controversy, controversy in SCCs in that if you have a mid-thoracic um, SCC and a lymph node, in your cervical region. I do know our Asian colleagues would do a three-stage esophagectomy and do actually a clearance of the lymph nodes in the neck. But if we had a SEC of the mid-esophagus and there wasn't any nodes in the neck, we would just do a ivalous. But that that is something that is quite often argued back and forth at MDTs and it depends on patient factors as well, whether they will be survive such an extensive undertaking. And we probably wouldn't be asked to go into the that sort of decision making, I guess, in the exam. No, I don't think and they'd be aware of aware of the discussion points, but I don't think you'd be asked for what you would do because that is a um, as I said, consultants still argue about it. Um the second part of the question was about the transhiatal esophagectomy. Yes, yes. 
So as your readings may show you that it is done in Europe, transhiatal in some centres. I, I have never done one. My concern is that with transhiatal there is an increased risk of bleeding because you can't see what you're doing. And with a transhiatal quite often there is avulsion of the esophageal aortic vessels, the small vessels, and they can really bleed. You know, transhiatal, true transhiatal, where you're doing the dissection with your hand, you can't see them and those would be hard to control. Um, I believe that there is some work being done on doing a robotic transhiatal and that way everything's under vision, uh, but that I think is still very much on the almost experimental front, whether it is feasible. And a transhiatal, I feel I can't, I would not be able to provide an adequate lymph node clearance. Because you can't see them. You can't see them and it tends to be more skeletonizing the esophagus. I do understand the Europeans' argument that it's better on the chest, but then on the other side, when we can do thoroscopic approach, that this is just as um, safe and the patients aren't as compromised with it. I definitely read some conflicting opinions, I guess, about the transhiatal approach. So that's great that you've been able to clear that up for us. Thank you. My next question is in regards to esophageal SCC. So I had some difficulty finding out what chemotherapy is given to esophageal SCC and whether it's, I know we use cross protocol chemotherapy for esophageal adeno, but do we give the same chemo for SCC? Um, short answer is yes, and in fact, in the original cross trial, a significant portion of the patients were SCC, and of that group, the SCC group did extremely well with the cross, to the point where there was complete response in about twenty five percent of patients, and once they went to resection, so cross is quite effective, I think, for SCC. The new chemotherapy regime on the block is flot and they, the early reports suggest that flot is more effective against the adenocarcinoma. So if I had a patient who had an SCC that was resectable, I would be recommending cross. If it was a true junctional tumour, adenocarcinoma, and the patient is under 70 and very fit, the recommendation would probably be flot. And that's before we have the outcomes of the Top Gear trial? At this stage, with the, with the doctor trial, they've changed their protocols to include flot. Where Top Gear comes into this is um, I, I have not fully put it into place yet. And along those lines, when would we give a patient with an esophageal SCC, when would we treat them with um, definitive chemoradiotherapy, and when would we give them adjuvant, neoadjuvant, with planning to do a resection? So, quite, this is partly to do with what we think the patient would be fit enough to un, to undertake, and also patient choice and patient characteristics. So, if we had a patient who was fit for surgery and um, was okay, or agreed to surgery. For an SCC, we would go down the lines of neoadjuvant treatment prior to surgery. If, however, a patient is borderline fitness, 
or they flat out refuse, um, they don't want to have surgery for whatever reason, or if there are other factors that would make surgery difficult if they've previously had chest surgery or chest trauma, especially on the right side, then a definitive uh, chemo radiotherapy would be the recommendation. However, I have come across a few cases where patients have had definitive chemo radiotherapy for their SCCs. They got good response, but then they had recurrence three to five years later. And those patients we have or have been offered salvage esophagectomies. So once you have definitive chemo radiotherapy, it doesn't mean that surgery is off the cards completely. And some things I read talked about if it was a proximal third SCC, you'd be more likely to offer definitive chemo rads than if it was a mid or a lower tumour? Yes, because the proximal third tumours are thought to be similar pathology to the SCCs of the larynx. So the ENT surgeons or the ENT group have done a lot of work in the um, definitive chemo radiotherapy for your laryngeal SCCs with esophageal SCCs seeing similar. But this is also a moving landscape in that when um, they did mainly definitive radiotherapy for your laryngeal malignancies, it had good um, complete response, but then five, ten years later they get recurrence and then it can be quite difficult to manage. So I do see some centres in Europe swinging a bit back towards doing laryngo, essentially the full laryngopharyngoesophagectomy to get better clearance. And I think that's a little bit dependent on the age of the patient. So if it's a younger patient, probably more likely to do a resection, where if it's an older patient um, who's within 10 years, I guess, of the average life expectancy, probably more along the lines of the definitive chemo radiotherapy, which is probably where most of the population is with this malignancy. I have a question about patients undergoing neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I guess FLOT is two rounds. They were four, four rounds before and four rounds after surgery. Yes. But CROSS, is that all neoadjuvant? It's all neoadjuvant. It's four, four rounds prior uh, with um, the chemo and the radiotherapy. And then we usually give anywhere between four to six weeks, but that's also a moving landscape and timing, much like in the colorectal Neo, um, neoadjuvant treatment and then they have their surgery and even if their um, pathology is really bad T3 and 3 there's no indication to give any more chemo or radiotherapy unless there's evidence of recurrence and then they go down the line of palliative chemotherapy which does take us into our next question which is how much do we need to know about the palliative treatment of esophageal cancer? And especially, I mean, I, I went down a big dark rabbit hole the other day of reading about um, stenting and brachytherapy and RFA. I mean, do we just need to know the basics that those are options or do we need to know details about when you would do what? And... I think you just need to know them as options. Um, it is quite complex, though. Two hours ago, I had a call about a patient, uh, 84-year-old who's borderline fitness with an SCC midesophagus. And the question is, we're waiting on a PET scan. But if the PET scan shows that there is metastatic disease, 
For her quality of life, I would be recommending an esophageal stent. However, if the PET scan didn't show any disease, she would be a candidate for definitive uh, chemo radiotherapy. Maybe she may not be fit enough for the chemo, but definitely the radiotherapy with the view to look at putting in a nasogeg feeding tube to give her nutrition to carry her through the radiotherapy as the SCC is very sensitive to radiotherapy and it may melt away. The issue with stents I have is if there's no metastatic diseases, at three months these can erode through the esophagus and into the aorta because of its close proximity and dealing with aortoesophageal fistulas in the palliative setting is very traumatic for all involved. So, so esophageal stents I'd only put in if it were in the palate, in the truly palliative where I don't think their survival is beyond three months. With regards to the other points, I haven't used brachytherapy or RFA in palliative disease. Yeah, I saw an article that said that brachytherapy was had this the same effect as stents in reducing dysphagia, improving symptoms. But I'd never seen that done before in here. No, in I haven't worked in any centres where it is uh, used routinely because it's not without its issues. As I mentioned, the um, aorta is very, very close proximity to the esophagus. As you may or may not have seen at surgery, they are millimetres apart. So if you've got brachytherapy in there, you've just got to be very wary. The aorta is very close and if the is brachytherapy a road a hole? It is um, a fatal event. Yeah. And if you had a distal esophageal tumour that was palliative, there's, I've read that there were some issues with putting the stent across the gastroesophageal junction and that that can cause severe reflux. Would that be a contraindication? I have put them across the junction. The important thing with the tumours is to is that they are truly stenosing. So I'd only put an esophageal stent in when the patients cannot get any nutrition down. So there would be to the point that they're struggling with liquids before I'd put a stent in. Um, when that occurs, usually you don't get issues with the reflux because patients are just so grateful they can swallow their own saliva. Because if you if they've got a stenosing lesion at the junction and they're unable to tolerate liquids, they get a lot of issues with pooling of saliva anyway. Um, more of the cancers that are quite proximal in the cervical region, if I don't, I would, would not land my esophageal stent within five centimetre of the cricopharynx because patients feel like they're choking. So that is um, one place that even if the lesion is stenosing, I would not be able to put a stent in. Um, the one or two occasions where it has been put in, I end up back at the institution at 2am pulling it out because patients are stridering. That seems like a pretty important thing for us to be aware of. Thanks for that. My next question, I came across a few macroscopic classification criterias for looking at gastric cancers. This was the Paris classification and the Borman classification. The reason I ask about these is that I can't really find a sort of clinical application of having to memorize these grading systems. And I wonder if it's more important that we learn about the Lauren classification or even the new sort of molecular subtypes rather than, you know, the Paris or Borman classification. 
Well, the fact that you're aware of them is probably all that you need to know because they are they're just macroscopic description because I think there's also a Japanese criteria um, classification that's very similar to the Paris um, definition and these classifications are more on for the academic side to describe or to to describe the lesions so when they're being written in papers that it's more homogenous in nature everyone knows what the same definition their clinical practicalities are minimal essentially and it and so the Paris is a macroscopic classification just to describe the lesions and I do know at uh, the institution we worked at the gastroenterologists were very excited to make sure that all lesions had a Paris classification just to so that everyone was talking on the same page uh, with the Lauren classification the histological classification that's um, in the setting of probably more along the lines of different chemotherapy agents in regards to the type of biology of the um, tumour, so your um, signet ring versus your diffuse, and that although there hasn't been a lot of clinical correlation, I think with the age of personalised medicine coming up, that would take be more of a factor and then there's going to be, I think, in the future more along the lines of genomic sequencing for the appropriate for different types of chemotherapy, but that's further in the future. And then I'm sure they'll have another classification for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading about the molecular subtypes, kind of like in breast cancer, where they're looking at the specific genes now and have you know, at least four different groups. It's just going to explode, yes. I think. Yes, yeah, so it's um, it's a huge area, but I think that that's getting more into the oncological side. I think to be aware of all these classifications exists. It is fair game, the Lauren classification, because it's um, one of the oldest um, classifications for the gastric cancer and one of the macroscopic classifications. Be aware of the other one, but if, say, an examiner asks you how would you describe um, this picture of this gastric cancer, you could say I use the X classification and I would describe this as a, a Paris type 2 or something along those lines. Um, then they might ask you the histological subtypes and then if you can say, oh, there's two types that I know of. If you don't know the eponymous name or the true classification, I've been told they can't mark you down for that because their eponymous names are supposed to be going out the out of vogue. However, on the other side, many of these surgeons are, are old school trained, although I should, probably shouldn't use that term, uh, have used eponymous names for most of their career and that's how they know these names. Will you ever get asked, you know, who was Lauren or who was? No. No. Good. If you are being asked that question, you're doing extremely well. When you are restaging post-neoadjuvant treatment for lower esophageal and gastric cancer, do you routinely repeat the diagnostic laparoscopy and washings? No, is the short answer. Um, there are scenarios where I will repeat it. So uh, if... A patient has cytology only positive um, or positive cytology washings. There is a 
evidence to suggest that 30% of the, our patients with positive-only cytology will become negative. In those patients, I would offer an operation because they do have better outcomes if they have a resection. Other times that I would restage is a if at the first laparoscopy, even if it's negative cytology, but it's looking like a T3, T4 um, gastric cancer, which looks like they should have positive cytology, but they don't. Those patients I would restage, but I make that decision at the time of the first laparoscopy. In the same line as that then, do you routinely, if you're giving you know cross-protocol chemo, do you ever restage with CT and PET or would you say they're dedicated to that pathway and dedicated to an operation and just proceed with surgery? So if a patient was the, um, at the first set of scans was determined to be resectable, uh, they, all patients would then get a repeat C, staging CT two weeks after they finish their neoadjuvant treatment to determine if the disease has progressed or not. If it has, um, I, the surgery would be off the table if it's metastasized. If it hasn't, um, all my esophageal and gastric cancers do at least get a repeat gastroscopy. Um, this is just to check measurements again and to see what the endoscopic response has been to the chemotherapy. But as uh, discussed, laparoscopy is dependent on whether I decided it, they need a repeat laparoscopy at the first round of staging before neoadjuvant. When would you do a total gastrectomy over a subtotal gastrectomy or a radical distal gastrectomy? And what the hell are the differences between all of those? <laughs> Uh, probably okay um we'll start with total gastrectomy so total gastrectomy is the linitis plastica so if i am suspicious that there's linitis plastica um, the plan would be for a total gastrectomy or for a proximal tumor so a proximal tumor being within uh, five definitely within five centimetres of the junction and up to 10 centimetres of the junction I would need a total gastrectomy, that being adenocarcinoma. A subtotal is where you leave a little pouch of stomach um, behind that I would perform for any distal tumour. So that would be distal essentially to the incisura would have a subtotal. A radical distal is, for me, is much the same as a subtotal. The radical part, I think, is more to do with the lymph node dissection rather than how much stomach you take. So if distal gastrectomies are also performed for um, ulcers or the benign gastric ulcer disease or if you've got a difficult duodenal stump and then just a standard distal gastrectomy is performed or in the setting of a gist. But a radical distal gastrectomy would be performed in the setting of um, adenocarcinoma or malignancy requiring a, what a, a lymph node dissection being D1 plus or D2 depending on the level of your training. 
I remember you talking to me about this a few years ago in a tute when I was an unaccredited um, about all the lymph node stations and gastric cancer. And I thought at the time, oh, I'll, I'll think about that later because it was so confusing. Um, it is still pretty confusing for me even reading through. And I think partly because it looks like different countries do different things. So hit us with it. In For Australian trainees, what is the difference between, you know, D1, D2, D3? And what should we be saying that we would be doing in Australia? For, we'll start with total gastrectomies because that's um, where the whole stomach is going rather than subtotal, which the lymph node stations do change. So do you know what your D1 lymph node stations are? So D1, I remember you teaching me the odds and evens, so odds down the left curve, one, three, and five, and evens down the greater curve, two, four, and six. It shows I was listening yep so that's d those are the d1 stations so with a uh, total gastrectomy those are pretty much come on block with the specimen as long as you're giving a little bit of margin of the fat a d1 plus is probably what most australian surgeons will be doing and that's doing the next tier of lymph nodes which is the lymph node of the, the left gastric seven and also some of the common hepatic, which is lymph node 8. Um, getting into D2 proper is when you're taking lymph node 12, which is over the porter. And when you start to follow the top of the splenic artery along, taking um, 11P, which is on the, as in closer to the aorta and 11d which is one closer to the spleen and those are when you're digging around the back of the stomach near the spleen and where the posterior gastric vessel could come up so when i perform a gastrectomy for either a distal or a total i start my lymph node dissection at about just proximal to where the gda comes off so i lift up the stomach, come under, find the GDA, and that is my most distal point. I then follow the GDA up, taking all the lymph nodes on top of the GDA, then across the common hepatic, and then that leads me right up to the base of the left gastric. So I consider that a D1 plus, almost D2 resection. It's probably D2 when I take the 12 and if I go right over to the spleen and take um, the ones just proximal to the spleen off. But usually by the time I get um, take the left gastric off, clear the rest of the splenic most of the way to the spleen, um, there isn't much more tissue left. Then your question about D3, which is um, I don't perform a D3, but I do know that um, some of our Asian centres do, and that's where they start chasing the lymph nodes around the pancreas and sometimes even up onto the what's called lymph node 16, which is right around near the aorta. I don't do those because if the disease has travelled that far, the risk of injury or causing more complications is higher than I think the benefit at this stage. And as is the ongoing argument is that Asian patients are a lot 
rather than normal or BOI for them are a lot easier to operate on than our current wet Australian patient, which is in their middle age or 60-year-old male at 120 kilos. is a lot harder to find all the lymph nodes safely than your um, 60-year-old skinny Asian patient where you can just pick up the pick up the stomach and essentially see all the lymph node stations. Gosh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> it, occasionally we do have a patient like that and we realise why our Asian centres can do such extensive lymph node resections. So I don't really have a good handle on what would be expected of us when we were talking about operative type questions. Um in the curriculum, there's the operative does and operative knows. And in the operative knows section for, um, for example, for gastric cancer, they talk about us being able to perform or knowing how to perform a total or subtotal gastrectomy. And I guess I don't really know whether that means they would expect us to be able to talk through the steps or whether they just want us to know in general what's taken out and sort of some basic key principles. And I guess I was hoping to get your perspective on that. Um, well, just to clarify, not an examiner. So I, I don't know exactly they want what they would want on the operative side. A distal, just a standard distal gastrectomy in the setting of a difficult duodenal stump, I think is probably fair game. And my impression would be just to in your answer to be familiar to show that you are familiar with the anatomy in the area. In that if it was for a benign a reason that you're doing a distal gastrectomy. You want to get into the lesser lesser sac. You go through the omentum or through the omentum fold between the stomach and the transverse colon and the landmarks to be aware of posteriorly are your gastroepicloic vessels that you will come across that need to be divided. The GDA tends to be a marker posteriorly of once you past the uh, or in the D1 area and proximally in a benign scenario you should not need to take the left gastric but if you end up taking the left gastric and you are going to leave um, a pouch of stomach don't take these uh, short gastrics otherwise that remnant stomach has no blood supply so the, I know that's a lot but those are probably just a few general principles. So I would be, I would learn how to do at least a distal gastrectomy. Um, the total gastrectomy is even less likely that you'll be get asked. But, um, but you can probably just carry on the principles from um, the distal gastrectomy. Given you raised the difficulty of dental stump. Mm-hmm. I've really found it hard. I actually requested some articles from the library the other day with some sort of drawings of the different approaches to it because it seems like nothing much has changed in 100 years and the articles are all so old that I couldn't get access to them any other way. That is correct. Could you talk me through what your approach would be to the difficult duodenal stump and what techniques you have up your sleeve for dealing with this problem? Yeah. Uh, so my, what I recall my standard exam response is that the, if you have a difficult duodenal stump, it's where you can't mobilise the posterior wall to be able to get sufficient closure. Once, that's been, once you recognise that that's an issue, the 
problem is, as usually, it's ulceration. That's is in a kissing ulcer. So there's a hole at the front and a big craggy ulcer at the back. For these, I would use what's called a Nissen's repair, which is where one cockerizes the duodenum to allow it to roll um, medially. And usually I use a sleeve to describe this to trainees, but I'll try to just describe it in words. So one takes the anterior wall of the rem duodenum and suture that down to the distal part of the ulcer on the posteriorly. So you're essentially closing the sleeve onto um, just behind the cuff, I guess is one way to describe it. And then as you've copperized, you then one rolls the anterior wall as much as they can over so that you can then suture the anterior wall down to the proximal part of the ulcer so that your anterior wall is covering the ulcer. So that is uh, the classic description of a Nissen's repair. However, in practice, it's not that easy to do. It doesn't always roll as nicely because the tissues are really stiff and difficult. You can usually get the anterior wall down to the base of the prox uh, the distal part of the ulcer, uh, but trying when you're rolling it over, sometimes that you have enough movement. Sometimes, if it's especially a big patient, it, you can't get all that enough movement there. In that case, I would plonk, get some momentum, and cover the ulcer and the stump with momentum, and put big drains either side. Then there is the question whether one puts in a um, duodenal drain or like a T-tube out the lateral part of the duodenum. And this, it's for me, it's a controversial area, but to be on the safe side would be to put a drain in. There are some newer um, techniques for draining this area, as is, um, described in some the literature for duodenal trauma is actually to put a um, put in a drain much further down and bring it up to the like a jejunal tube but turn the jejunal tube so it goes actually back to the duodenal space um, but all of these options the majority of these duodenal stumps will leak anyway and it is just management of how well you manage the leak. The other option, if you can't do a duodenal stump nissen's repair, is to create a duodenostomy, and that is usually with your basic 20 French Foley's catheter. Um, but that can be quite hard to achieve closure around as well because all the tissues are, again, all friable. But it is, there is a reason why it's difficult in the term because they can be very difficult to control. The most important thing, I think, is to put drainage above and below whichever type of repair you end up doing. If you do do a Nissen and you manage to get that anterior wall down, what do you then do with the proximal duodenum? Do you have to resect that? Uh, so if, if you've got a big hole, um, you will need to 
essentially perform a distal gastrectomy. So all that tissue will, um, will need to come out because you'll need to seal that proximal end and form a gastrojejunostomy rewire formation. I've never seen a Billroth 1 or 2 reconstruction even in those scenarios. Would you say that we don't do these anymore or is there ever a scenario when you would use these? We will see patients who have had a Billroth 1 or a Billroth 2 around. The issue with the Billroth 2 where you're bringing the biliary limb straight onto the stomach is the patients will get bile reflux. And bile reflux, if you've ever met a patient with it, can be quite horrendous and uncomfortable for them. I find a rewire, you're less likely to get those problems. And um, I know it is an extra anastomosis, but your, je- your extra anastomosis is the jejunostomosis, anastomosis, which usually doesn't give you the trouble. If you do a, if you've got a difficult duodenal stump and you do a distal gastrectomy with a rewire, I can still say that you, the duodenal stump is going to be your problem area, not your jejunostomosis or your gastrojejunostomosis. With a difficult duodenal stump, there is another type of repair, but I would never recommend it, something called the Bancroft repair. And it's still for ulcers, but there's no way you can split the mucosa off the um, muscularis layer easily in the setting of inflammation. Nearly an impossible task. But I I think I did hear from one um, exam that the examiners were pushing the training, asking for a third type of approach. And I believe that's what they were pushing at. But I think that's if there's all, that's the reason why there's two examiners. I don't think that would have made any difference. It probably was the, the, the um, candidate was doing extremely well if they were being asked that question. Another fantastic guest episode for First Incision. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much, Marianne Johnson, for coming on the program and letting me grill you for nearly an hour on esophageal and gastric cancer. Just to summarize some of the answers to the questions, I know Marianne gave us lots of fantastic detail, but I like to go through and do a quick summary um, of answers to the questions that I asked. The first question was the role of endoscopic ultrasound in the workup of esophageal and gastric cancer. A nice way to think about it is that it may be indicated in early disease to confirm an N0 status or to biopsy a suspicious looking lymph node where it may change your treatment, such as giving neoadjuvant treatment rather than proceeding directly to surgery. The next question was around the different types of esophagectomy, and it does seem to be tumor location dependent. So a two-stage Ivor Lewis would be used for lower esophageal tumors and some mid-esophageal tumors. A three-stage would be used for upper esophageal tumors and sometimes mid-esophageal tumors, with a gray zone being between 25 to 30 centimeters from the incisors, which depends on an assessment about whether or not you may be able to achieve a good 5 to 10 centimeter clearance above the tumor. In regards to esophageal SCC, the same chemotherapy is given as with esophageal adenocarcinoma. So this is the cross-protocol chemotherapy with carboplatin, paclitaxel, and radiotherapy. Along those same lines, 
some patients are def- treated with definitive chemoradiotherapy who have esophageal SCC. This really does depend on patient and tumor characteristics with a consideration that high esophageal tumors may be considered for definitive chemoradiotherapy in the same way head and neck SCCs are. But if a patient is young, there is a significant risk of recurrence, so they may be considered for neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy and then for surgery. For patients who have esophageal adenocarcinoma, who get neoadjuvant cross-protocol chemotherapy and radiotherapy, there is no evidence for adjuvant or post-operative chemotherapy, even in the setting of poor prognostic disease on final histopathological examination. In terms of how much we need to know about palliative treatment options for esophageal cancer, it's good to know the different options that exist, but the finer details about decision-making is probably above the level we need to know for the fellowship exam. Another knowledge question was whether we need to know the Paris and Borman classification or whether the Lauren classification is more relevant. We should probably know that they exist and learn at least one of the macroscopic classifications. So if we're given a spot picture, we can give a definition of how it appears macroscopically. And also the Lauren classification is important, especially probably in the future when considering targeted treatment. So we do need to know these. I'm sorry about the bad news. When restaging patients post-neoadjuvant treatment for esophageal and gastric cancers or lower esophageal and gastric cancers, we don't need to routinely repeat the diagnostic laparoscopy and washings. Some exceptions to this rule is in patients who are cytology-only positive pre-neoadjuvant treatment or if they have very bulky or locally advanced disease where a decision was made at the initial laparoscopy to repeat the laparoscopy. We would, however, restage patients with imaging and a gastroscopy after neoadjuvant treatment. Moving into our last question, which was around operative topics and when you do a total gastrectomy over a subtotal or radical distal. A total gastrectomy would be indicated in a patient with linitis plastica or diffuse involvement with a diffuse gastric cancer. Total gastrectomy would also be used for proximal tumors, which are definitely within 5 centimeters and up to 10 centimeters from the gastroesophageal junction. A subtotal gastrectomy would be used for distal cancers, and that is distal to the incisura. And the term of a radical distal gastrectomy um, is thought to be much the same as a subtotal gastrectomy, with the radical part having to do with the number of lymph nodes taken rather than how much stomach you take. And moving on to lymph node stations in gastric cancer. A nice summary is that D1 lymph nodes are the gastric stations, which are 1, 3, and 5, the odd numbers along the lesser curve, and 2, 4, and 6, the even numbers along the greater curve. A D1 plus is what most Australian surgeons would do, which includes the left gastric uh, station 7 lymph nodes and the common hepatic station 8 lymph nodes. A D2 proper in includes all of those stations plus lymph nodes 12 at the porta hepatis and the splenic artery nodes which are 11p and 11d. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!